Hi, everybody. Cheryl Atkinson here. Welcome to another edition of the Cheryl Atkinson podcast on justthenews.com. I hope you'll check out all the Just the News podcasts. You can go to justthenews.com to see the list of them on the homepage. For all the news about the big tech censorship that we're seeing today, it's all explained, including who's behind it in my new bestseller, Slanted, How the News Media Taught Us to Love Censorship and Hate Journalism. There's hope. Information is power, and you can get some today by reading Slanted. Today in my podcast, a top government virologist at Fort Detrick talks about the promising treatments for coronavirus, why we need them even with vaccines, and what else lies ahead. A lot of you are understandably interested in my interview last week with Dr. John Dye, Chief of Viral Immunology and Deputy Director of Foundational Sciences at the U.S. Army Medical Research Institute of Infectious Diseases. We addressed all kinds of questions. If you missed it, you might want to listen to that podcast after this one. We talked about vaccine effectiveness, immunity, RNA vaccines, the origin of the virus, and more. Today, an extended look at the rest of that interview. Tell your friends it's also airing on the Sunday edition of Full Measure, January 24th. He's answering questions about our immune system, promising treatments and therapies for COVID-19, and more. Aside from the vaccine, what are some promising therapies that are now being used or that you see on the horizon? So the steroid treatments that are going on in hospitals right now seem to have great effects. Why is that? uh, So basically you're amping up your immune system to be able to control the virus better. It's basically priming your system so that you're able to control. There is a lot of studies that have been going on with convalescent plasma, where you take product from a person who has survived the the infection prior and has nice high neutralizing antibody titer in their blood and then provide that as a treatment. That seems to be working very well. There's also multiple monoclonal antibodies and cocktails of antibodies that have been moving forward from Abcellera and Eli Lilly, from AstraZeneca. They're moving these products forward and they are actually in phase one, two, and three clinical trials. How do you get antibodies? If that's not a vaccine, is that Mm -hmm. an injectable though? That's an injectable, right. So you would actually IV, have it hooked up, and you would receive the dose. And then basically you would be providing the antibodies that are generated from a vaccinated individual directly into you. So, and I think there's always gonna be a place for a treatment like that, because you're, I don't know if you're, you're always gonna have five to 10% of the people, even if you have a 95% efficacious rate that, aren't responding to the vaccine, don't develop it, so you still need to have something to offer them if they do get sick. So that's more like, instead of a vaccine that builds your own immunity to prevent it and your own antibodies, they're just giving it to you once you have it. You basically are inducing a uh, immune response by providing product to them that they would not generate otherwise. How long does that last, do we know? So most of the monoclonal antibodies that are moving into treatment are from human. So they're human monoclonal antibodies. So they normally last between 21 and 28 days in the bloodstream. So you would be protected. That would do its action for 21 to 28 days. But in that time, you would expect, let's say you were sick, you received the treatment, your own immune system would start to kick in as well, and then you would be able to control it beyond that. So it's more getting you over the hump to allow your own immune system time to respond to control that virus. What do we know about how long immunity lasts if you've had 
coronavirus and become sick with coronavirus versus the vaccine we know for a couple months out may last longer. What about for natural? We're still developing that data set. We we have to look at reinfection rate because there are cases where people have been reinfected with the virus. And then what is the severity of that infection? What's the immune status of those individuals? So there's scientific communities and, and, and people who are actually looking at that exact question right now, but it's going to take time to develop that database. When I looked at some research a couple of months ago, the reinfection was so rare that it was written up as part of a study when it occurs. And so the consensus was, as, as of that point in time, that at least for the period of mm-hmm. six to nine months or maybe a year, most people seem to have immunity if they've had an infection. That's what we hope. I think, again, it's going to take time to look at those. Right now, they're the one-offs where you have a person who's reinfected. It's not something that's occurring on a very good, regular basis, which is a very good thing, which means that your immune system is developing through that first infection or through a vaccination the protection it needs to be able to control that virus the next time we see it. Will everybody either have to get a vaccine or probably get coronavirus? It's almost as if you watch the news coverage, we feel like we're all going to get it. But then again, I looked at some studies and some data from China that I don't know if we can believe, but it was published in a U.S. journal, Mm -hmm. that actually show it's a very tiny percentage, actually fraction of 1% of the population exposed or in a general area that gets coronavirus over a period of time. What's the latest of what we know about how many people would get it? We, we don't know. That, that's the bottom line. It's, it's going to be very interesting as we move forward with the vaccination of individuals when you also layer in the immunity that's being generated by people who are getting it, no matter whatever that level is within the community to start off with. The idea is and this is the concept of herd immunity, which a lot of people have been hearing about, which is that if you layer in a vaccination on top of the natural infection, you're going to get a certain amount of the population that's immune so that that virus doesn't have a place to go and play. It doesn't have a place to go and replicate and generate more and then spread to other people. So it's going to be very interesting. We've never had anything like this before. So it's going to be curious to see how it moves forward. What are we learning about people's natural ability to fight off this virus? I think it was you talked about interferons. I don't understand that. But what are some of the things people may have in their own system that fights this off without any help? So we all have, to varying degrees in our immune system, something called innate immunity. And those are the interferons. There's NK cells. There's a lot of scientific jargony terms that basically are your ability to fight off an infectious agent independent of what that agent is. So... With a vaccine, you're developing what's called adaptive immunity, meaning you're providing something and you're responding to that particular agent. A lot of the innate immunity, it's more generalized. It's everybody has it and some people have it to varying degrees. So there are people who have high interferon gamma, high interferon alpha, beta levels that are already in their system for whatever reason that they're able to keep the viral application down to allow them to be able to control the virus easily. And there's studies being done to try to figure out what sort of things might exist in a person's yeah, body. Yeah, I saw a very interesting study where it looked at the genetic, uh, at the genetic level, what proteins in people who were asymptomatic that they were generating over time, and they, they narrowed it down to five genes that in a certain subset of people that did not develop 
they, they knew they had COVID, but they didn't develop symptoms, that these were highly regulated genes, they had high production. So they're starting to, to dissect that problem and understand because then that gives us an idea. Well, if you know gene X, Y, and Z provide protection, can we artificially boost gene X, Y, and Z in everybody? So then it's not really a vaccination, you're just boosting the innate immune system to be able to control the infection in general. More with Dr. John Dye after a short break. We are back with Dr. John Dye, Chief of Viral Immunology and Deputy Director of Foundational Sciences at the U.S. Army Medical Research Institute of Infectious Diseases, also known as AMRID. I guess I would just want to reiterate that, you know, what we do here at USAMRID is we try to be prepared for the future. We weren't, we weren't here for COVID. We weren't built for COVID. We were built for infectious diseases. And when COVID came along, we jumped in with both feet and that's what we've been working on. But we're going to continue to work as we talked about on future versions of coronavirus, as well as the other viruses that most people don't even hear about or know about so that we can be better prepared for the future because that's really what we need. Is it possible that people in some cases are fighting off coronavirus and have been exposed, but don't have the antibodies in their system when they measure for it, so they don't know? Yes, it is possible because if your innate immune system, let's say you're one of those individuals, lucky enough individuals that you just fight it off with no problem, you don't even know that you had it. It's possible that your innate immune system is so high that you're able to control that virus before you even get a chance to develop a large number of B cells which produce those antibodies. So it may be below the detectable limits of the test that you're providing. So, and that's a good thing. I mean, in fairness, this is all uncharted territory. Right. So it's not trying to blame somebody. Mm -hmm. But what mistakes did we made, or have there been failures, or even mistakes that shouldn't have been made? Yeah, I don't know if I would classify them as mistakes. I would say that I would, I would classify them as challenges for the future. I think one thing that we can learn and we identified as a challenge from this pandemic is the global communication of the scientific community. What happened in many cases in this particular pandemic is each individual country, nation, or group of nations developed a technology or a vaccine or a treatment in their individual silo. And I guess what I would hope in the future is those silos are more open so that we can then learn from each other so people aren't making the same mistake in different countries and we can get there a lot quicker. Do you have any comments or criticism of the information flow when it comes to just news and public information? There have been so many con contradictory reports. There have been mistaken reports. What is that like to maybe be at home and watch information that you know isn't quite accurate or maybe not the proper context? I look at it more from a public perspective. It just gets confusing, right? It's just, there's so much data and information out there and different takes on data. You have one expert over here saying this and you have another expert over here saying this. And you just start to question, well, who do I listen to? What do I listen to? So. It's when, but that, that's part of our culture, and I don't know if that's gonna go away, but at the same time, I would hope that the people who are putting forward this information are doing their due diligence to make sure that the information they're giving and they are relaying is as accurate as possible. Well, thank you for clearing a lot of that up for us today. You're welcome. That was Dr. John Dye, Chief of Viral Immunology 
and Deputy Director of Foundational Sciences at the U.S. Army Medical Research Institute of Infectious Diseases. You can watch his interview and tell your friends about it on the Sunday, January 24th episode of my national television program, Full Measure. If you don't have a station that airs it or don't know where to watch, look for the list at CherylAckison.com under the Full Measure tab, or just watch it online anytime after about 11 in the morning Eastern Time Sunday at fullmeasure.news, fullmeasure.news. We also have an app called STIR, S-T-I-R-R, where you can watch live or on demand anytime. Do your own research, make up your own mind, think for yourself.